Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Leftology Podcast. Today, I am joined by my co-host, Patrick, and our guest, Mouthy Infidel. Um, today, we are planning to talk about uh, democratic strategy and Jimmy Dore's recent, what was it, explosion is probably a correct word to say. Yeah, that's probably yeah. accurate. Yeah, I, I watched about five seconds of his clip. I've never heard of this man before. And I was like, I, I can't take this anymore. This is not fun. See, I had never heard of him before, but apparently he worked at like the Young Turks with like uh, Hassan at, at some point. Because uh, I saw Hassan talking about it. And um, yeah, man, that man exploded on AOC. Like absolutely fucking went nuts. Um, what, are you, what are your guys' thoughts on the situation? Well, for me, I think like... Um, they, and... and- also, yeah. the situation is essentially uh, people are trying to pressure progressives like AOC and Ilhan Omar to push for a symbolic vote on Medicare for all uh, to hold it over Nancy Pelosi's head, more or less. Yeah. Yeah, that seems to be like the basic idea. Uh, like my sort of general thought is that like I, I get this sort of idea of like trying to force a vote on Medicare for all, I just don't think it'll like accomplish much. Like uh, Medicare for all is not going to pass in the house and it's definitely not going to pass in the Senate. Um, as far as like, cause I hear like a lot of the argument is like, well, forcing a vote on Medicare for all will tell us, you know, who's in favor of it and who's not. So we can know how to primary, but it's like, if you want to know who's in favor of it, just look at the co-sponsor list. Exactly. Like we already know this information. And also a symbolic vote isn't really going to tell you who really supports it and who will really support it when the time comes. Um, yeah. Also, I think it's honestly more important to pressure Democrats to, that have uh, like talked about the public option, push them to actually go through with that. Because I don't think you're going to get them to come over on Medicare for all if you can't even get them to do the public option. Yeah, I think um, like what you said about the um, it, it won't tell us like who actually might support it in a real scenario is interesting because a lot of this sort of response when people like AOC say, well, if you want to know who supports it, just look at the co-sponsor list. What people like Jimmy Dore have tried to respond with is, well, people might co-sponsor the bill and then like not actually vote for it. But the problem is if Democrats in the House know that this bill isn't going to pass the Senate anyways, they might still feel comfortable just voting against or voting for it, even if they really wouldn't, if they thought their vote might lead to it being passed, you know? Yeah, it's just as pointless as the co-sponsor. But on the topic of like the Medicare for all versus the um, public option, uh, I'm curious what you guys have been thinking about it, because my kind of stance on it is I don't know if it is a good move to go to the public option uh, instead of just going fully for Medicare for all, because I feel we're going to create a two-tiered uh, healthcare system where poor people end up getting screwed over. But the fact that poor people have some sort of option at all is going to keep us from moving any further. And so I've been thinking about this a lot with um, honestly a lot of economic conditions where is incremental change going to hurt further incremental change in the future? Yeah, I think um, the public option has never been something I've been super big on. Um, I think like the public option would undoubtedly be better than what we have now. 
but um, it, it still leaves like a lot of the worst aspects of our current health uh, healthcare system in place. It still allows for this system of, in of insurance churn where tens of millions of people a year, if they lose their job or they get divorced or they re reach a certain age, have to switch their health insurance, which adds a lot of uh, stress on people. It leaves in place like bloated private insurance administrative costs that leads to us all spending more on health care than is necessary. Um, and it still leads to high cost sharing where in an, idea, in an ideal healthcare system, we would have very low cost sharing meaning that everyone's basically paying the same amount into the healthcare system, no matter how much, um, or no matter how sick they are, or how much they're utilizing healthcare. And under a public option, this isn't the case. You know, if you're sick, you're still paying a lot more for healthcare. And I think this is a problem, well, one, in the respect that it's going to lead to a lot of people not utilizing healthcare as much as they should be because they're afraid of having to pay more. And uh, two, it leads to this problem of, I don't think, as an egalitarian, I don't think that somebody should be significantly worse off in life uh, financially just because they um, like had diabetes or something, as opposed to an identically situated person who doesn't have uh, that condition. I also think there's a problem with like coming to the table with the public option as the as all that you want because like coming. Like if we're looking at the Overton window as an idea, expanding it is generally a good thing, especially towards the left, because the further left that goes, the further the center also moves left. Because like, if you come to the table with um, Medicare for all, you might eventually get a public option. But if you come to the table with the public option, all you might get is that a couple of court cases get removed and make the ACA become slightly stronger again. Also with like moving, even if we achieved the public option, doesn't it, isn't it like end up being more expensive than Medicare for all would be in the long term? And so I worry that we move to that, which is slightly to the left, which it's funny to consider the public option like a left wing idea, considering it's like uh, historically a few decades ago, subsidizing care for people in the country that couldn't afford private insurance was something that Republicans had mentioned in like past debates. But that said, I fear that also we move to the system that ends up just being worse all around than either the two sides. And then Republicans end up going, look what happened when we gave them a bone and moved a little to the left. And then we end up bouncing back further right from a bad policy. And that's kind of the same thing I'm worried about happening with the removing subsidies of, from oil, but not putting any uh, money into green uh, energy. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, and I think that like, as far as the idea that we should be like pushing for a public option, um, because I, I mean, I don't really know, like, I think you're completely right that a public option would cost significantly more than Medicare for all. In fact, there was a study published a while back in uh, The Lancet on the cost of Medicare for all, which basically found that because Medicare for all would so drastically simplify administrative costs, obviously, because now there's not a bunch of private companies like competing and, you know, engaging in business strategies to deny people care if their costs would be too high and so on. And no one's um, like trying to fit profit into their payment as well. Exactly. Yeah. And so like, um, because Medicare for all would drastically simplify administrative costs, it would lead to the country spending drastically less on healthcare. 
whereas a public option, the same, uh, the uh, researcher who did the Lancet study essentially said that while Medicare for all would drastically decrease healthcare costs, um, public option would probably substantially increase uh, healthcare costs. So even like, and it's funny because like, a lot of Democrats like Joe Biden were posturing about Medicare for all saying like, look, the reason we can't have it is it would cost too much. But like the reality is, according to all the credible research, the public option would would cost substantially more. Yeah. And the worst part is people believe that because of this idea of playing the centrist game of there's always a two sides that need to be heard out and come together. But I find that like with a lot of the stuff we're talking about right now, the the centrist take is worse than either of the sides. Um, and man, it's going to be, it's going to be really fucking hard to listen to Joe Biden for these next four years, especially considering he's not even yet in office and is already like his little dementia brain is making him go angry on progressives. Yeah, it's, um, it's certainly frustrating. Um, I will say though that to to some extent a, a lot of um I think progressives should rightfully be upset about what Joe Biden is going to inevitably do as president and what he's already done in the posturing he's sort of uh, taken up but I do think there is merit to the idea that to some extent the growth in the left wing movement has had a substantial impact on the way that Joe Biden has has operated um, because Joe Biden throughout his entire career has essentially just been like a weather vane. Like he will put himself in the middle of the Democratic Party, like in the exact middle of it, wherever it happens to be at the time. So like back in the day, he was like, you know, the middle of the Democratic Party. Then the Democratic Party moved a bit to the right. And so he moved a bit to the right. And now it's moving a bit to the left and he's going to move a bit to the left. Um, he just kind of wants to be like at the center of the the Overton window, wherever it is at the time. And uh, I think we can see some substantial, um, some substantial like uh, positives of that, particularly in terms of who he's picking in terms of his uh, cabinet. I mean, if you compare Joe Biden's cabinet to Obama's cabinet, Joe Biden's cabinet certainly isn't good, but it's substantially better. <laughs> than uh, Obama's uh, uh, cabinet was. Um, so yeah, I think um, it, at least that's like somewhat of a silver lining here, I think. So so you think that maybe if we further shift the Overton window that he could be pulled to a more left-wing position? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's a, a fair thing to say. I guess it's also, um, I worry because a lot of the problems we talk about today when it comes to like criminal justice and police reforms and uh, like mass incarceration are problems that like Joe Biden was a major part of creating. And so I think that also creates a lot of worry with people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I don't know. Um, I've been thinking about this lately. Is there value to have tried to play a more uh, establishment Democrat like centrist over a further progressive in this past election. This is a bit of a, a jump of topics, I think, but I was thinking about recently, I honestly think there are people that who voted for Trump that would have been more likely to vote for Bernie than Biden. And let me let me kind of explain this because I, I, I think off the bat, it sounds a bit insane, but I talked to um, 
like talk I talk to people that are less politically engaged like my mom for example and she is like fully on board with like uh medicare for all she wants to legalize all drugs she's for regulating um businesses and big corporations but when it comes to like people the past two elections where we had like hillary and biden i think a lot of people associate them with corruption and the big business and so I think they didn't even necessarily vote for Trump because he was a Republican or because he had Republican values. I think it was partially, I mean, I think the culture war had to do with it. He wasn't pushing like cultural, like leftism. And also he wasn't associated with just the corruption in the Democratic Party. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of merit to that sort of idea because I think in large part, um, Trump's uh, uh, player, who he appealed to, is sort of like like populist types, right? Like he ran on, you know, I'm anti TPP, I'm anti these, uh, you know, trade agreements which have hurt the middle class, and uh, you know, I'm like a pro working class economic populist kind of guy, and um, I think that sort of appealed to a lot of people who have been largely disenfranchised because, you know, they've seen their wages decreasing uh, for decades or stagnating for decades and so on. And yeah, I think, um, and Bernie actually made this argument on the campaign trail that it's a, a lot harder to pull those people away from Trump when you're running someone like Joe Biden, who was a NAFTA supporter and uh, you know has these disastrous records on things like uh, free trade, um, at least from an optics perspective. Yeah, and I wanted to mention that because I found um, like a lot of neoliberal types are like, uh, well, uh, Biden got in, barely got in, so what makes you think Bernie would have made it across the finish line? Um, and I think it is because a big part of like the main democratic party is we for some reason become anti-populist and anti-sloganeering and then like in in the in the midst of being anti-sloganeering he's saying shit like returning the soul of america which is sloganeering right so it 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 doesn't make a lot of sense to me and i don't know why we have taken th these roads Populism does get kind of tricky on the left because it, it really matters who you're talking to. Because you do, like, I don't know, like the Kyle Kalinske, uh, Jimmy Dore types, they technically would count as populist in a sense. But so would like AOC and Bernie. Uh, so you have like the problem of like, are these people going to be class reductionist? Are these people actually going to be helpful to like the cause as a whole? Because there's the because comics and then the actual people on Twitter talking about how like Tucker Carlson is like, oh man, Tucker Carlson actually is the only person on TV that gets the working class struggle. And I'm like, yeah. no, that's that's not the point. Like if you're going to be the left populism, you're supposed to do the left populism. You're not supposed to fall for somebody else trying to trick you. You're supposed to be the guy on TV telling you are being exploited. It's by the rich people. It's not by the Jews. It's not by... Uh, black people it's not by the foreign government you're being exploited by a rich class of people who want to take as much money out of your labor as they possibly can and that that's it 
Nothing great. Yeah, can can that message even be achieved through the Democratic parties because of all the big donors to the party? It would take a while. I mean, I think um, I think Cam's point here is interesting because I I do think there's this like super pernicious trend where. Um, so-called left populist. And, and I know before we started uh, recording, we talked briefly about rising, which I think is a perfect example of this, where um, some people who call themselves sort of like left populists um, will essentially frame it as if, um, you know, left populism and right populism are basically two strands of the same tendency um, and we have, you know, the common enemy and these common goals of wanting to take down the establishment, which is why, like, like literally the, the title of the show Rising is like two populisms are rising and taking on the establishment. Oh. And it's framed in such a way that, like, uh, as if right populists are our allies. But this is like, seems like a super pernicious idea because just because we share some similar vague criticisms like the establishment is bad that doesn't mean we share the content of that but, but criticism what or the solution is very yeah, exactly different. right it's yeah. like are we talking about the bourgeois or are we talking about jews like that's and, and uh, when we talk about a solution are we talking about giving people health care or are we talking about like excising other races from our society like, that's the important part. I think uh, I'm of the belief that right populism isn't actually a thing, right? Because like Tucker Carlson, for example, people call him the right populist. Does he support Medicare for all? No. Does he support a higher minimum wage? No. Like, he doesn't actually support ideas that are populist. He just, like, pursues the messaging. And yeah. I don't think we should legitimize that. It's a yeah, but I also of the will of the people in a sense. <laughs> Yeah, with all like the right wing populism, it's taking the actual problem and hiding it behind a cultural issue. And with um, with left leftist or the left in, in a very general sense is over the past like 10 years been more focused on social progressivism than we have on economic progressivism. And I think that has hurt us because I don't think the average person in America gives a fuck about like social progressivism. It doesn't really matter. They want to know what you're going to do for them. And so when Trump talks about opportunity zones and raising the GDP and look at the stock market, people associate this with uh, like improvements for the working class, even though they really aren't. Aren't opportunity zones just like gentrification? Yes. So, dude, the opportunity zones are like probably one of his like uh, optically best proposals because it's literally just gentrification. It's literally just pro big business bullshit, but it sounds like it's good for poor people. And the way and he he constantly talked about it, about how he's expanding on opportunity zones. We're bringing these opportunity zones to these poor areas and it makes it sound like he cares and he's doing populism. That's good but it was total bullshit. It's just That's like fucking Reagan. always done though with the poor areas. Like I've been reading, like I, I'm a really big like city planning buff or at least I'm eventually trying to be. Uh, so I'm like reading a book called, uh, it's called Capital City. It's on Verso if you guys want to check it out. Our listeners are the five people that are going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, but uh, they're talking, I'm on the New York chapter right now and it's talking about uh, how Bloomberg and uh, 
de Blasio aren't much different on their real estate policy. And like, it's pretty much true. I mean, uh, Bloomberg's worse. I, I question if I would have voted, voted for Bloomberg had he been the nominee. Like, I think the only real difference was that Bloomberg really believed in uh, the climate science. Yeah. That's, that's about it. He'd fuck us over in every other way. Uh, but like, it, it's some evil stuff. Like it's taking away. Uh, so ah, let me try and rephrase it. Uh, so what happened is like there was a push towards like putting uh, the Olympic Games for 2012, which eventually ended up in London, in New York. And the guy who started that proposal became uh, somebody not in the city planning department, but over it. And when they get denied later about 2005, they moved all these like giant stadium plans and these village plans and they don't just completely scrap them because they're not getting an Olympic games, but they turn them into gentrification. So like Bloomberg is as the time was probably one of the most powerful popular uh, politicians in America as a mayor, he represents more uh, people than pretty much all people in Congress and a good many governors. Cause that's, what is that like about 10 million people in New York now? So he just took these swaths of land and just repurposed them for high-end housing. Uh, what was it? I think the plan was he upzoned poor housing, which if you don't know what that is, it means that they can put more houses in a plot or they can put more living places in a plot. And then they downzoned the rich areas, which means that the places that already had more places or like rooms to stay in then were allowed their value goes up and then some stayed the same those are more poor areas i think uh so it it kind of it they didn't gentrify or regentrify or put more into the rich areas but they just kind of screwed over these poor people because you can extract more wealth out of their houses now right I think that's like, uh, to, to get very general, the main thing we need to change people's minds on is that the goal of society should not be to maximize wealth. And I think it's something that a lot of people believe in. Because like, if you think about like, most of the arguments come from coming from the right always end up being like these left wing policies are too expensive, and they're not economically viable. Um. And that's why I think we need to, uh, in general, for moving people over to the left is start talking about how maximizing GDP and maximizing the stock market and seeking out uh, endless growth is not the, should not be the goal. Yeah, I, well, I think um, to some extent, having productivity increase is, um, is, is a good thing. But I think that there's a strong argument to be made that we can do these kinds of things within the framework of the, the kinds of policies that leftists advocate for. A good example is uh, the Nordic countries. The Nordic countries have single payer, or, well, not all of them have single payer per se, but the Nordic countries have, you know, universal healthcare programs, free college um he, like super high taxes that fund super expansive social welfare states um massive unions all these kinds of things which right-wingers argue isn't conducive to economic growth 
And yet, if you look at cumulative GDP growth per hours worked in the Nordic countries, it's as high, in, in some cases higher, than that of the US. So there is just no evidence that these kinds of like social democratic policies and proposals actually do hurt uh, economic growth. And, you know, in terms of like these kinds of proposals costing too much, um, you know, if we want to look at things like Medicare for all, we can actually show that these things cost less because of gains in things like administrative efficiency. Um, and yeah, and even things like UBI. Uh, Matt Brunig has a good uh, has a good article showing that UBI already exists. There already is uh, trillions of dollars uh, in the economy which are being allocated with no strings attached uh, to a group of people. It's just that it goes all to wealthy people in the form of capital income and sort of like uh, uh, buying up those assets through a social wealth fund and redistributing it through a UBI wouldn't cost much money at all. So, yeah, I think there's all kinds of arguments to be made that, you know, this sort of fear mongering about cost and growth and productivity against uh, as a means to resist social democratic policies is just not very well founded, I guess. But also, I think I think also what I what I am getting at with that is completely changing the framing as maximizing profits and maximizing GDP aren't even a goal that we should be striving for. They are important to have a good GDP and to produce goods, of course, for the country. Of course, that's important. But maximizing it and making the most of everything should not be the goal. Uh it, it, though it is part of it. And I guess, I guess like why I make that distinction is because when you talk about how, I think it is important to say Medicare for all is cheaper than the current system and then the um, public option system, but it also does play into that framing of the argument. Yeah, I think, um, so I think that like GDP maximization and, and having like a good GDP and productivity, I think I agree with you that it's, it is desirable. It's, I think it's a good thing, but I don't think it should be like the main priority, right? Because I mean, there are very, very clearly countries where the GDP is to some extent lower than the US's GDP or GDP per capita. Um, and yet the standards of living for the average citizen are far better, right? Like I think like Finland and, uh, and uh, like Denmark and Sweden, I think some of these countries have lower GDP per capita than the US, but I don't think the average citizen cares how high the GDP is when they are taken care of in terms of healthcare and education and, and these kinds of things. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with you, like GDP isn't the best metric when uh, sort of trying to analyze the, the health of a society or, or how successful our economy is. Um, but I, I do think to some extent, uh, have, having like GDP growth is, uh, is better than not having GDP growth, all else being equal, you know? Yeah, I guess I just like, the, I, I think about it as like the settlers versus like indigenous people at the time where uh, one of the reasons uh, the settlers justified taking indigenous lands was because they could use the land more efficiently when the ad indigenous people were only do producing enough to provide for themselves and not getting greedy on the from and not being greedy with the land. And so I think like with a lot of the arguments we have for pushing for a better society, we have to reframe them from 
what they're currently framed as like with like with a say like free college for example it is an investment in the future of our society by training young people what are you gonna say cam uh i uh well i was gonna say that you had to look at uh like what makes up gdp too because that's also important because you can get a rise in gdp and not mean anything at all too uh because i mean i've only taken like a macro econ class in college so far but eventually it's going to be my one of my majors but what i've learned is that uh gdp uh is made up in part by uh like housing and stuff like that it's not made up by the value of the house it's made up by the potential value of renting that house or space out of so as like as i've said city planning buff which involves real estate but uh the book i'm reading the like the preview says that like real estate is about 60 percent of the entire world's wealth at the moment it might be a little over that now because it's been a couple years uh since that book's been written but like you can build these big uh, apartments in manhattan that are just going to go to somebody that's not going to use it at all like somebody that needs a ninth apartment or wants a ninth apartment, but that's included on GDP and that's GDP growth right there, but it doesn't make a single person's life better at all. Yeah. I think places like India have like very high GDP, but like the average standard of living is like not great. Uh, Similar. I mean, America has a very high GDP and yet, you know, nonetheless, something like 80% of workers live paycheck to paycheck. Um, whereas countries with lower GDP have like comparatively much lower rates of poverty and inequality and the sorts of things that actually matter uh, to people's quality of life. So, yeah. I also like Republicans a lot of the time and those that are also conservative, because there's a few parties on that side now mm-hmm. um, there's the Patriots party, which we might can get to later today because I don't know much. Do any of you guys know about that? Not really. No, if I'd have to guess, it sounds like a Trumpist type party. I think it is. I looked it up for a second because I was like, is this real? Oh, it's real. Because I'm kind of curious where like uh, American fascism is going to go post Trumpism. uh, We're going to have to give that about eight years to learn. But um, what I was saying is uh, like those on the right typically view uh, hard work as the thing that frees people. So work will set you free is the quote that you hear a lot of the time but that's not really true for everybody is everybody here probably understands at this point uh and mouthy definitely does because the amount of like stuff that you know and write essays on yeah um and the people you debate but they're kind of forgetting that like uh if you're going to use western philosophy or psychology there's maslow's pyramid which have you guys heard of that before Mm -hmm. And then Eastern philosophy also has, I think it's the seven chakras. But like if people can't meet their uh, basic needs and then their safety needs, they're not going to be able to work as hard as somebody who has that field. They don't have the time to learn and they don't have everything met to where they can focus on that. Because if you have a kid at school who can, who's not gonna, who doesn't know where his la- uh, next meal is going to come from and he didn't eat breakfast, how is he going to pay attention in class? And yeah. uh, I think that's important to understand. And I think, I think those, those issues are actually 
not only important for people to understand, but one of the hardest thing to hardest things to explain to people. Yeah. About and- like sorry like but explaining like poverty isn't exactly a choice you don't just choose to get a job and get rich and that there are a ton of external factors that lead to cyclical poverty and imprisonment that i don't i think we need a better way of explaining that very step by step and matthew you just debated a what is it a social darwinist yeah 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 so like what would be your answer on like how to get around this and how to convince an audience against a social Darwinist. So there's uh, essentially two things here as, as far as, you know, the idea of like, you know, hard work and, and earnings and so on. So first of all, when we look at poverty in the U.S. and even across the world, the main reason poverty is so high isn't because people are choosing to not work very hard. It's because because about half of the population is literally locked out of having a market income. They, they can't work. Um, and this is because half of the uh, population is either children or elderly or disabled or uh, a caretaker, meaning they're you know taking care of like a family member who has a disability or something. So about half of the population um, can't work and furthermore, shouldn't work. These are, these are people who should not be working, right? They, they don't have like the wherewithal. Um, and so, yeah, so, so the idea that like the solution to poverty is just for people to work harder is, is completely insane. The problem of poverty is a, po- is a problem of large amounts of the population not being able to make money in a market And so the solution is obviously to create some sort of a welfare state that allocates money to people who otherwise wouldn't be able to make money for themselves in a market. Um, That's like the pretty obvious uh, uh, solution. Um, So this would take the form of things like making sure elderly people get money from like social security, making sure kids uh, get like universal child allowance paid um, by like the government or like universal uh, child care and uh, pre-k and you know these sorts of things um, and uh, the other point is um, there is a variety of studies I was just reading one earlier in fact which suggests that welfare actually increases people's productive capacity for like a few reasons so like for one there's an economist called Gareth Olds who's done a lot of uh, uh, research showing that welfare actually increases entrepreneurship. And that's largely because people, uh, th- there's a lot of people in the economy who might be thinking, hey, I want to go start this business. I have this good idea. I want to go out and be productive and be an innovative you know, business starter or whatever. Um, but they say, essentially, I'm not going to go do this because I'm afraid that if I leave my job, I'm going to lose my health care or I'm not going to be able to provide for my children. So if you have like a welfare state that provides benefits for people, regardless of whether or not they have a job, then people feel more secure to go out and start their own businesses and be productive. Um, And this is why we see correlations between welfare and things like business startups. We've seen correlations between welfare and things like innovation, which is a point that I brought up to JF. If you look across OECD countries, um, innovation, even when controlling for other factors, is positively related to um, uh, like social spending. Um, so yeah, this this social Darwinist idea is um, uh, seems like really pernicious for for those reasons, I guess. Also, what you were saying about um, uh, welfare uh, states being better for 
productivity is that was one of the big things that um, Andrew Yang in the primaries pushed for his UBI. And I think he was really effective in moving over the libertarian types that are kind of that would normally vote Republican, but are kind of disillusioned by the two party system as a whole. And I think, honestly, I think our biggest the people we should be focusing on, in my opinion, as the Democratic Party are not the people in the middle, but the disillusioned libertarian just want to grill types. Because from talking to them, I think those are the people that are most likely to move over because those people, I think they, because those people at least realize there's a problem with what's going on in society. And I think if you can convince them of your solution and that there are solutions available outside the Democratic and Republican Party, then you can move them over on that through like those values of like what you were talking about, like uh, having good welfare state to improve innovation and stuff like that. Cause people don't have to worry about whether they're going to end up on the fucking street or not. Cause they want to invest in something. Right. And I think a, a good way to sort of convince libertarian types is to make the case that, Hey, look, your, you know, I just want to grill libertarian idea is a good one as long as everyone can afford a grill because otherwise you know kind of having like symbolic freedom where you're technically allowed to do whatever you want in life doesn't actually mean much if you are too scared of you know leaving your job to pursue what you actually want to pursue with your freedom um so i think that's like a pretty um like, like a pretty good argument to make for like libertarian uh type people yeah, and the other thing I've been talking about to people about to move them left is when addressing the hierarchy, like, because people will, will talk about, especially like with post-Reagan stuff, people will talk about how poor people are just lazy and they don't work hard. But I've been trying to explain it in the way that like capitalism breeds hierarchy. Hierarchy, and like this is something even like the Freedmen's talk about, whether it's uh, Milton or his son, where it's like hierarchy is a very necessary part of capitalism for it to work. And even if everyone in the society worked equally hard and was equally abled and had equal opportunities, you would still have people at the bottom. And those people at the bottom deserve to make a living wage and they deserve to have their needs taken care of. Yeah, and I think another way to go about that is like, like what you're saying is like completely true. And additionally, if you just want to look at it on a purely empirical level, um, the vast, vast majority of people on welfare um, either are working or can't work or like have a family member who's working. The, the amount of people who are just like living off welfare and not trying to find a job and are just, you know, like like hanging out being, you know, the, the sort of the welfare queen uh, a stereotype that the right pushed for a long time. This is a tiny, tiny percentage of the population. And like every study on this has like borne, uh, borne this out. Um, like almost everybody on welfare is either can't work, is working or is looking for work. And additionally, if you want to look at the, how welfare itself affects incentives, um, studies have found that the effect 
of work disincentives on uh, from welfare on welfare's impact on the poverty rate um, is about uh, basically zero percent. Um, so there's just like no empirical basis for any of this. Like the the sort of fundamental idea is people generally. Um, this isn't like a utopian myth. This is backed up by like statistics. People generally want to work. People generally want to be productive in some capacity and do something with their lives. Um, so yeah, this this uh, has always been sort of a myth. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's also the thing is like that's also one of the things that goes with like socialism is how do you get people to work? And I think it's because since people don't work jobs they like, they either pick a job because it's well paying or pick a job because it's all they can get and they're not paid that much at all. I think people, uh, I think we've devalued work, you know, especially because like um, it, like people at the top are always like, uh, if you love your work, you'll never work a day in your life and shit like that. And they, and they glorify work, but in the wrong way almost. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know. I feel like there's more to say about that, but I don't, I don't know where I'm going with that. I've, I mean, I've, I've heard on the left, I haven't, I haven't seen it in a while, so I don't remember everything about it, but like some people were differentiating labor from work. Yeah, that's always like, I, I never really uh, was into this sort of thing because it just seems like a semantic kind of thing, which isn't yeah. going to make sense also, to most people. Yeah, semantic arguments. You're oh, if you want to make random semantic differ- differentiations, and like even meaningful semantic differentiations, those are always going to lose. Like the like the po- private property versus personal property. People not only don't understand it, they don't give a fuck about understanding it. And then, like, you'll be arguing with someone, and you'll be like, when I say private property and personal property, I mean this, and they'll still lump the two together, regardless of what you say to them. You mean I can have my toothbrush, but my house is collectively owned? Right. You're, right. you're going to take my house and my toothbrush? Does my son have to use my toothbrush, too? Do we only get yeah. one toothbrush a year? <laughs> and it's like, it's sort of like, we can see this in the example of, like, the personal private property thing we can see this in the example of like um even to some extent ideas around abolishing and defunding the police (laughs) it's just like we we have all of these and and additionally when people say on the left say like abolish work or whatever it's like they're just saying these things and it's like i don't know like how do you not know that the vast majority of people aren't going to know like what you're talking about you know even with stuff like defund the police i think like like joe biden was talking about how defund the police was making him do bad made him do worse than he would have it's like no there's a lot of fumbles you made this should have been in the bag for you but you didn't talk for like five months after you got elected (laughs) brother like um but also but also um i think the problem with that is we we say these things and then we do a fucking terrible job for um, advocating for them. And we let the right wing describe these things to people. We let Republicans tell people what defund the police was. We were not at the forefront of describing that movement. Yeah, that is uh, why defund the police failed. Like, like I was even talking to like my family and they'd be like, you know, they're talking about defunding police. That's such a stupid idea. A stupid idea I've ever heard. And then I explained to them, like, oh, maybe that's not so bad because we let them describe it. Yeah, because well, yeah. uh, you see it on the stage in um, 
like the Joe Biden Trump debates and Joe Biden's not he's barely playing the defensive at all. Like he'll say like, shut up and stuff like that. Dude. But he's saying like, I, I defeated the socialists and stuff like that. I think defund could have been a winning strategy on the debate stage. If he took five fucking seconds to explain it. it, it it's not the best term of all time. And I'll admit that I think maybe demilitarize the police would probably been better. And that that's honestly what we want uh, in the long term. Like we might want to change it away from law enforcement to more, I guess well, the community the, something would be the best thing. Cause the thing is with, with a, like defunding the police is it's largely tied into defunding the military too, because you can't demil- demilitarize the police without defunding the military. Well, yes. But the thing is that like, if you def, if you just say defund, there's like, you know, Florence, we had our, we had our police shooting here uh, two years, two months ago. And it's it's such a stigma. It's like, oh, you want cops to go in defenseless, and it's like, you kind of have to backtrack on that because it's it's not something you can go forward on. You're going to turn them on. Well, the thing I've been like commissioning is that people always go, no, we need more funding so we can do more training. But you have to recognize that the training is how we got into the problem in the first place. Yeah, the training is a little problematic, especially if you look at what training they're doing. The problem's not that. Uh, the problem is that they do so few training. It's like a six hundred hours or something. Like I've I've spent more time playing on Minecraft servers in the last like also, two years than they spend like doing <laughs> law enforcement. Like your your job is to like protect. Or your job description as it is towards the public is to protect me. I mean, it's it's probably really just to protect private property. But you spent six hundred hours training for your job, like. My job is to stare at people and make sure they don't drown. And I, I had to do like 20 hours for that. And um, I have to retrain every few months. <laughs> I think also, even if we did do good training, like even if we did like quote unquote good training and we did something like racial diversity training, I think any progress made through that would be instantly stamped out by the corruption and the culture behind policing and how even the quote-unquote good cop still upholds the bad cop because they can't speak out against each other. Well, it's the system as a whole because, like I said before, their job is truly to protect private property. That's That comes over the people. They tell them that. But yeah. it's also that they're training. We're, in a sense, during their training, their enemy. We're the people, even though they're supposed to be protecting us, we're the people that could shoot them and that's how they treat us. And that's yeah. what right-wing propaganda allows them to believe because if we're going to have so short times of how long it takes for you to become a police officer, then it's going to be something that people can just fall back on, which is not something we want. We want people that actually want to do this and actually care about their communities. If they're going to go in to protect people. Also, this reminds me of like, I was scrolling through TikTok and someone and some liberal girl was asking why leftists are always so antagonistic and mean towards liberals and shit, or why leftists are mean towards liberals. And I think the reason is, is they always want to do band-aid solutions to systemic problems. Like training people is not going to do anything for the systemic problems within policing and giving them more money to do trainings or even demilitarizing isn't going to fix the problem. And you're not going to fix the, and, and same with even policing in general of doing more policing to police uh like more crime that happens you have to fix the material conditions of 
what is causing the crime. You cannot just keep uh, putting a blanket over it and uh, pretending it's going away if you don't attack the material conditions. It's like, uh, I was talking to my, my, my mom earlier this year during the protests, and I was like, you can't just be aggressive towards protesters and arrest them and shut them down because the protests will keep coming up and these problems of racial injustice are gonna keep coming up as the years go by unless you squash the conditions that led to the problem. You can't just squash the protest. You have to end the material conditions that led to the protest to happen. And that's why I think one of the better aspects, or one of the aspects that I liked about some of the um, rhetoric around defund the police was the idea that we could divert some funding from uh, the police and allocate that funding towards um, fighting like socioeconomic conditions like homelessness and income inequality, which are the sort of root cause uh, of this crime uh, in the first place, um, which, which I think is like a, a really good idea. Yeah. But the problem is with like a lot of people with power is they don't want to fix the sociological problems that cause crime because people with lots of money benefit fucking massively from mass incarceration in this country. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the private prison system is fucking insane. It's not even the, just the, like there's the private prison system, there's the prison labor system. You know, I think it's funny, like um, Republicans will go on about how Mexicans are coming to take their jobs. But what about all the companies that are functioning off prison labor because they can pay prisoners less money than they pay actual fucking workers. See, like there's so many solutions to this, but they'll never happen because the people with the money and the people in charge benefit from these horrible systems that oppress the people. It's there's a lot of things like that. Like um, neoliberals talk a lot about a, uh, I guess zoning anarchy would be the best way to put it. By just building as much housing as possible would bring up or bring down the. Uh, price and so far that's kind of been shown to not be true because the prior the priority for the people who are building the house as long as it's in a private market is to build the houses for the people who can spend the most on housing so it's going to go up towards luxury apartments rather than having public housing built yeah the supply and demand doesn't exactly work when it comes to like housing or when it comes to labor even because it gets more specific it like, yeah. They're meeting a demand for housing. It's just they're meeting a demand for rich people housing, while the demand for public housing and extremely like affordable housing is a misnomer because like affordable for who? Like is it is affordable for rich people? Affordable middle yeah. class? Or is it affordable yeah. for everybody? And also, we had Trump has convinced people to be anti-affordable housing because it's going to bring bring crime to your neighborhood, which it is because poverty is highly linked to crime. But the answer to that is not to allow uh, poverty to fester even fucking further. It's to find more solutions to fix the poverty. Yeah. And, yeah. And I think um, uh, I think we, we have at least brought forward Band-Aid issues or Band-Aid solutions to like these deep systemic issues. But we there's there's more that needs to be done to to say that this isn't just something that you can put a bandaid on. Like the, the infections like deep in your fucking arm, you got to like clean it out from the inside. I have to right. cut off the arm. <laughs> yeah, honestly, when it comes to like our policing system, I probably should fucking cut off the arm. And get a, and, and what is it called? I think like there's two things that we need to address with people though, is like, 
is we gotta one find a way to make people more empathetic to people that are in need like someone that can't work needs to be taken care of by the rest of society but also um there's also like in intrinsic like very barbaric desires that we have to overcome within people like when we talk about prison reform and like abolishing capital punishment and shit like the all the arguments for that go to your very like uh primal instincts and that's something like we have to overcome with people because like i saw a lot of people defending the killing of brendan bernard recently because we have allowed criminals to become so dehumanized over the past like 150 200 years of the prison system yeah. i don't know prisons are, are something i've been thinking about a lot recently because i just i i'm almost all the way through uh our prisons obsolete by Angela Davis, and um, I'm I want to do a video essay that kind of uh, summarizes that book more or less because th that's something I've been talking to Cam a little bit about. Is like I, I wish I could do this more, but I'm really a fucking really slow reader. But I want to take big concepts that take books to explain and try to make them more accessible to people. Mm. And like, I want to try to like boil down these big complex topics, but it's a really hard thing to find where to start because they are a big web of issues that led us to where we are today. Yeah. Yeah. And I do want to bring something up maybe for the last 20, 30 minutes of this, but like, uh, Matthew is another creator as the last creator we talked to was Isocratic, I believe in episode two. But uh, like messaging is a good thing to talk about a lot of the times because um, I was talking to my grandfather a few days ago and he's like a Trump supporting right wing guy as they are. Mm -hmm. um, but we were talking about it and like I, I was surprised to something like, nobody should have that much money as in like talking about billionaires. Nobody deserves it. And he completely agreed with me and I was just thrown off. Cause like uh, I, yeah. think, <laughs> I was just like what? It's like this guy that believes that this guy who like cheated on his wife multiple times, uh, lies about how much money he makes and is uh, indebted to a foreign country, is like a king sent from God, agrees with me on how uh, billionaires don't deserve that much money. <laughs> yeah, and and it's sort of like. I think that's sort of indicative of like a lot of like boomer types have sort of ideas that are vaguely populist or, or sort of like underlying philosophies that are vaguely populist. Like left-wing populist. Yeah, but, but these ideas like have no connection to the actual societal prescriptions that these people have. So like they'll say things like, oh, these fucking elites are, are ruining everything and, you know, these rich people are ruling over us and nobody should have this much money. And then you ask them, okay, so do you support like higher taxes on the rich to fund social safety nets or, you know, like these sorts of things? And they'll be like, uh, no, I actually support Trump and the Republican Party. And it's just No, really so strange. the thing is with like taxes is when you talk about taxes on the rich, here's the thing that I always hear is well, they say they're going to tax the rich and then they end up taxing us too. And then they, it comes down. And I, I've been trying to explain that tax cuts is the same way. They 
give you barely get tax cuts and they hand out these massive tax cuts to the people above you. But I think what you said is actually really, I had not thought about it that way before. It's really important that the bi-coastal elites people complain about exist because of Republican policies of cutting taxes and deregulation. They do right. come from a different set of like masters of the government would be a best way to put it. Like the book I'm reading talks about how since like the fifties and sixties that they were mostly raised in um, had a different master, which would be like the industrial power that has been in control since like the 1870s. Uh, and now our shift has been to real estate as I've talked about multiple times here. Uh, so like the industrial uh, powers like uh, the Rockefellers or whatever was in control by the sixties, they benefited from things like uh, healthcare and public housing, because that means that our unions ask for less. Cause if you're going to, if the government just hands out housing, Oh, the, you don't have to pay quite as much as rent. Uh, stop asking me for more money, uh, which isn't a real thing anymore because our, the new overlords is uh, the powerful, real estate firms and they're like oh public uh, housing uh, that brings my property values down by uh 0.1%. Uh we can't have that. I'm we're going to have to move these poor people about 10 miles this way and then we'll redo this land about 20 years later and their children will move uh over here. Uh I got plans for that later. I'm not going to tell you though. Uh I think like the other big thing with the left is we need to shift focus away from shift focus towards economic issues over social issues, especially considering a lot of social issues find their root in economic issues. And most people on the right don't really give a shit about social issues, as I kind of a little mentioned a little earlier. Um, and also, you know, I think it's really hard for leftist, left, left-wing people to not be antagonistic when talking about a lot of these problems. Because, like, even a little bit in this, in this, in this um, podcast, if you are a leftist and you read about the just profoundly massive amount of like injustice that has historically happened in this country and is still happening now, it is very hard to carry the weight of knowing all that stuff and then present it to people without getting worked up. And then when they don't instantly listen to you, you know all the deep intricate ways that this is, we fucked people. It's very easy to get very angry instantly. And so I think antagonism is one of the main things I think we need to work on as far as messaging goes because because of like because of the subject matter and because of how much we've read about this stuff it makes it very hard to not be that yeah in addition in addition to uh, antagonism there's also just like like simplicity right because like so much of like what the left talks about is like such such deeply complicated shit right like if we want to talk about like income inequality i could give you like a summary of like that thousand page piketty book about like the you know the structure of inequality and the mechanisms of you know uh, you know savings rates and growth rates and stuff but it's like most people don't want to hear about that kind of thing um like most people don't want to listen to you like do your summary of like das kapital for like you know three hours to them you know at thanksgiving yeah. right you gotta so, make yeah. you gotta make the subject matter more uh digestible for an audience and i think a lot of that comes with we need more left-wing personalities almost to dumb down 
big complex topics for a large amount of people another problem is like a lot of us are stuck in the theory of like an industrial age which we're not in anymore Mm -hmm. and i i think the problem with that isn't that we really need i mean we do need more people to continue writing books but we probably could shift back to older theory also in a sense because like i think a lot of people are just looking at like late 1800s stuff like kratopkin and marx and stuff which that it's pretty good but we're like the united yeah. states has seen a drop in labor participation rate since the 90s i think instead of trying to like build up these like unions which might be a good idea for a leftist movement we should also be trying to like build up like a post-scarcity message also alongside that because eventually with the onslaught of automation that's going to come in hopefully the next 20 years uh, uh, hopefully is an uh, automation will be used as a good thing which it ultimately probably won't yeah but, and that's that's something i've been mentioning a lot recently as well it's like we need to move to a more socialist society before we hit massive automation where we have like five people making all the money in the society off of absolutely no labor well, right. that, that would be i i don't want to say that it's going to be the contradiction that makes everything fall apart because everybody's been saying that about the year they're in since Marx came out with uh, the communist manifesto, probably. Uh, so yeah. I don't want to be the guy. And then I don't want to look, look like some guy 150 years from now, it's on YouTube and like he's breathing in like oxygen monoxide and his lungs have finally transitioned to it. Um, and he's watching this podcast on YouTube and he's like, wow, how could he believe that the contradiction of capitalism was in 2020? It's, <laughs> right, it's, it's right. 20, uh, 2170 right now and we're nowhere close to it at all. Also, I think like... Uh, like being the I real think, end stage then. Yeah, and I think it's, what we got to make people realize is that like, I think socialism is inevitable to come post-capitalism and it is either going to happen... Uh, as a slow movement towards it, or we are going to enter dystopian automated feudalism <laughs> and there's going to be some sort of violent revolution. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do see in history, uh, the contradictions came close to a head in the turn of the 20th century, but you had the progressive movement that kind of like instituted the reforms to like block it off. And I'm not, I'm not saying those are bad things perhaps, but they did help to like, stop a workers like right mass rising they instituted the eight hour day and minimum wage law comes in the 30s at least which is not a bad thing you know i'm glad for those things to exist but uh i think that's kind of a lot of leftists are scared of just putting a band-aid on it and moving the end of capitalism another 20 years down the road yeah, and that's that's what I was saying earlier about how like uh, a public option is a band-aid solution that doesn't really get to doesn't really end up fixing the problem in the long run. It makes it worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a what has it been? A little about, over an hour? a little about an hour, not quite an hour yet. Um, yeah, but it has been a good talk. I think we're gonna end it off here unless you have anything. Yeah, else to talk I think. About. I think we need to bring guests, more guests on. I think the discussion is always better with uh, some guests. Yeah, we, we need to, on our 100th episode, if we can survive that long, uh, just get all of our guests back and just have a like 100 people Zoom meeting. 
Bro, if, if, if at this rate, it's going to take us, what, like, 10 years to get 100 episodes? Yeah, at our, our rate of pro- producing an episode between... Uh, we either produce three episodes a week or we produce one a month. <laughs> we're, I think we're, we need we're, to... We're close to Matthew's schedule at this point. We got to get to every two weeks. Yeah. We need to get to every one week. <laughs> Dude, I think every two weeks. And then if we could do a uh, video essay every month, like we're talking about doing in 2021... I think that'd be successful. Any suggestions on uh, doing videos before we uh, sign off? Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, because you, yeah, you're see, probably doing different content than us. Yeah, I I do like... So, like, my thing is, like, if you guys want to do video essays, um, I've sort of... I've been, like, wanting to sort of do video essays for a while, but I, I have no idea how to edit video. So, like, I cannot make that uh, kind of content. I'm just, like, so technologically uh, illiterate. Um, generally, what I do is I just... I either do a debate and I record it, or I, like, find a video that makes a bad argument, and then I record me reacting to it or something like that. Yeah. Um, it's generally, like, very low-quality uh like production stuff see i think since me cam and uh we have a a third friend with us we i think we might be able to diversify the labor enough to handle it well because like cam you're pretty solid at writing essays i'm gonna try to take a uh i'm getting solid at writing essays. i'm gonna try to start looking into doing that though see man like i've got topics i want to talk about like i want to talk about like the the um the conception of race um Mm. and also talk about like I want to summarize that Angela Davis book, but it's it's um really overwhelming to to figure out where to start because I, I do want to I want to I want to help educate people on these deep sociological issues, but it's it, they're so complex that I don't know where to start with like explaining them. Mm. I mean, we have different ideas for what we have to do. I mean, we probably should also start streaming soon, which I don't want to talk about that right now. I don't want the the listeners to just be like, wow, they're just talking about what they're going to do in the future, and then they're never going to end up doing it. Yeah, it's so hard with, like, college, and, like, I'm also doing my music and shit on the side, yeah. and then just trying to, like, enjoy life and do fucking bullshit as well. Well, Matthew, before you go, you got anything to plug? Oh, yeah, my... uh YouTube is youtube.com slash mouth infidel. I think um, my Patreon is <laughs> patreon.com slash mouth infidel. I write like some exclusive essays on my Patreon about like I've, political stuff. I've read a couple. They're pretty good. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. You were subbed for a minute. Yeah. I, I had to move my subs after you were like, I'm going to take a two month hiatus. <laughs> yeah. Listen. <laughs> uh, I'll resub once I get disposable income again. <laughs> it's it's okay, no worries. Uh, uh, yeah, it's pretty fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed having you on. It's always it's always much more fun to have guests in these chats. It was a good talk. Hope to have you on again. And uh, to our listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back with another episode eventually. <laughs> <laughs>